0: Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, I don't mean to be too forward, but me and my friends were just talking, and um, saying, oh yeah, and they were saying that you have friends coming to talk tonight. If you guys could sit down, we'll start in a couple minutes. well I didn't do this schedule but you guys are going to be subjected to two hours of me so let's get started this afternoon we're going to talk about the ambassador's method you know Paul I think it's in 2nd Corinthians 5 calls us ambassadors of Jesus Christ you know an ambassador is a good analogy of our role with the unbeliever. Think about it, an ambassador has three, jo- three aspects of his job description. First one, he needs to be familiar with the policies of the, company, of the country that he represents. He needs to have a firm grasp on his company's policy. That's what we worked on in the first two sessions. I hope to give you guys, hopefully you already had it and it was old hat for you, but hopefully each one of you has a firm grasp of what the policies of the heavenly kingdom are and a clear, message, a clear understanding of what the gospel message is. Um, <clears throat> I found a test paper laying around and someone had put down that repentance was saying I'm sorry. Um, that was not what repentance is. Repentance is a mind change that goes from saying I'm going to be God and it's to, I'm changing my mind now to you are God. That's a very key component. When I, I don't know how, where you guys are on your test papers but I don't want to hear just the run-of-the-mill Christian route answers that you've, you've grown up giving. I really wanted to challenge you guys to think a little deeper and to really grasp what a radical life change Christianity requires, not just as an optional feature, an add-on if you want to be a Christian, but it's the very essence of becoming a Christian, which really does mean a change and a surrender to Christ's Lordship. You're not saved by the works, but if you are saved, saved does mean that you have a reconciled relationship with God. But that's the first aspect of an ambassador's job he's got to be familiar with the policies of the country he represents the second thing an ambassador has to do is he has to be able to translate those into the language of the company he's trying of the country he's trying to reach that's what the last couple sessions were about learning to speak the language of the country you're trying to reach So we're citizens of heavenly company with heavenly policies trying to reach an earthly mindset and the unreached and put it into their language. The third aspect of an ambassador is they have to have the character, have solid character that reflects the goodwill of the country. You don't pick a boozing, carousing person to be your ambassador to another country. You want to make sure that this person has the character to back it up. And you want to make sure that your character is reflecting the country that you're representing, that you're acting like a citizen of Christ. Evangelism is something that makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable and produces a lot of guilt. Because we all know We're supposed to be out there evangelizing, there's enough commands in Scripture, but very few of us have an evangelistic life that we're proud of. Once we get out there in conversation with people, the ideas that seem clear in our head start to get messy, stumble around, it seems to get artificial. I know I cringe when spiritual things come up because my heart rate rises and I get tense, and things don't come out like I want them to, and they start not even making sense to me. And it's just a matter of practice. But this issue of what do we, what's our obligation to those outside the church? There's two extremes that people fall into in this category. On the one hand, it's the go get them, just seize the day. (laughs) I think it was, I'm not going to give his name, but it was one prominent teacher who gave the example for evangelism. He used a civil war analogy of... A confederate who went and shot a Yankee and dragged him back to camp and said if you want a Yankee go get one. And that was his analogy for evangelism, that if you want a convert go get one. A pretty humanistic view of what evangelism is. Another example people will use saying picture your unsaved people as someone who is in a burning building. If you saw someone in a burning building, you would just rush in there and grab them by the collar and drag them out of the room. You wouldn't care about offending them. You would be there. All you'd want to do is snatch that person from the flames. There's a, that analogy breaks down, though, because you can drag someone from a burning building against their will. But you cannot save a person against their will, because that's the whole essence of what it means to be saved. You know, throughout church history, Christians have made this mistake time and time again. They have failed to realize that it's only the Holy Spirit who can convert a person's will. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is to have a will that's converted, a will that is surrendered to God. A brand new life change. And there, this is what prompted the Inquisition uh, and when you think about it the inquisition makes perfect sense if we have the ability to change to convert someone because isn't it in the against the backdrop of eternity isn't it better that someone spends 10-15 years being stretched on a rack and accepts Christ than it is for someone to be happy for the last 10-15 years of their life and spend a whole eternity of hell if you look at in those terms the whole inquisition and the torturing makes sense, except for the fact that that's not really what it means to become a Christian. God honors our will and we need to reflect that. Now on the other end of the spectrum is the extreme of people who say it's all up to God to change people. God's completely sovereign. We have no requirements to the unsaved. When, How many of you here have heard of William Carey? Okay, William Carey was an evangelist to India, I think in the late 1700s. Really a powerful missionary and God really blessed his work. William Carey was in England and he had a heart to go to India to reach the unsaved. And one of his spiritual mentors came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Don't worry about that, William. If God wants to reach those people in India, God will save them. He doesn't need your help, and he doesn't need my help. Thankfully, William Carey didn't listen, and he obeyed the Great Commission and went to reach those people. So where is the balance? Some people also object to us using apologetics or reasoning with people, saying, you know, reason doesn't convert anybody. We should just love people into the kingdom. The problem with that is, loving someone into the kingdom doesn't work either. See, God is the only one who can truly convert a will. So, without God's sovereign will, loving a person into a kingdom isn't going to help. Serving a person into the kingdom isn't going to help. I like the approach that Greg Kokel has taken. He says, we need to see our evangelism as 100% God's responsibility And 100% our responsibility. Our job is to be very prayerful, to be committing this whole thing to the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, but then leaving what is God's responsibility to Him and trusting Him to do His work, but then on the other hand doing our job to the best of our ability. Someone else used the example of when you go to a surgeon, you know, for example, my, my grandpa's an amazing man, he's 75, he still does the Ironman, he did the Ironman triathlon just a year ago. Are you familiar with that? It's where you, it's where you uh, swim two and a half miles, bike 112, and then you run a marathon. At 75, he did that all in one day. But his, he had a heart valve that was shrinking, so he just had open heart surgery, he had a, a bovine valve blazed in. So that, take that, that surgeon for example. Obviously my grandparents are trusting God to guide the surgeon's hands but at the same time they also wanted to go to a surgeon who was going to be as careful as possible. They wanted a surgeon who trusts God but they don't want a surgeon who's just going to be a butcher and say well God's gonna do whatever. In our same way with our evangelizing to people we can't just say we can butcher whatever we want and just slash our way through the gospel and leave the results to God. I don't understand completely. It's such a mysterious, this whole, why God allows us to be, to have such an impact on people. It's a a sobering thing that we have a huge impact on those around us. Sometimes for evil, sometimes for good, but our lives affect other people dramatically. That's the way God set it up. I don't understand it but we're going to give an account for the way we interacted with other people. Jesus said that whoever causes a, one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better that a millstone were put around his neck and he be cast into the bottom of the ocean. Very serious stuff. How are we inter- influencing people? So on the one hand, we need to have a confidence that it's God who is saving people. That should be both an encouragement and something sobering. because. If you're saying, well, you know, I have never led anyone to Christ, you're, you're still missing the point. Because it's not about you converting someone, it's about you being a faithful witness and doing what God calls you to to the best of your ability. Conversely, if you say, boy, you know, I've been a really effective evangelist. I've just converted hundreds of people to God. That's also missing the point. It's not us who convert people. Our job is to become Christ-like and to show genuine love and to instruct people. That's what the Bible commanded us to do, to teach them to people to obey the commands of Christ, to to contend earnestly for the faith it says in Jude, to convict and correct people who contradict, to tear down the false ideas that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. These are all things that we know are our responsibility. So we do need to rely on the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, there's also things that the Holy Spirit has also told us we need to do. and we need to be diligent in doing those things. So we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, but we also need to be as careful and as, as, pos- as careful as possible. This is why you need to in- invest in learning about basic communication skills, basic people skills learn the art of persuasion what causes people to change their minds what causes people to be hardened these are the things that you need to pursue out of love but always you trust the Holy Spirit so today I'm going to look at some very practical things that we as ambassadors should be doing to become a more effective witness for Christ. The first thing is you need to develop genuine friendships with unbelievers. It's very hard to witness to someone effectively if you do not have a friendship with them and it's even harder to witness to someone you've never met. You need to be rubbing shoulders with the unbelievers, not with the purpose of just trying to convert them, but your first goal should be to show them genuine agape love. To have a genuine friendship with that person do you realize how much the world longs for genuine human friendship see we get spoiled because we have the holy spirit indwelling us and we find satisfying friendships because we have christ's love in us but for people outside they don't have genuine friendships. They have some deep friendship but it cannot be on that level until the Holy Spirit is really showing them agape love. So develop genuine friendships not for the purpose of just converting them. It's no fun when people from other faiths do that to us. My brother and I worked for a pig farmer and he was a Mormon. And he was very friendly to us, very reaching out, made us feel like great employees, especially for six bucks an hour. But we thought this is he as a friendship until one night he came to our door and gave me a Book of Mormon and started really putting the pressure on me to just read it, look for the burning in my bosom, to pray over this, to not use my mind, to just really see what the Holy Spirit was telling me. And we told him no and gave him our reasons. And he walked away in such a huff and I've never heard from him since. It wasn't a genuine friendship. it's not going to be easy developing genuine friendships because when they attack your faith, when they throw out objections, you're going to be very tempted to be hurt by those objections and just walk away. And they may be throwing these out to test. Are you, do you genuinely care about me as a person or do you just want to control me? You know, it's so much easier to have a natural, friendly conversation with someone when there's no agenda, when you're not nervously trying to manipulate the conversation, when you just want to develop friendship. And I think that is the prime soil where the gospel seed grows. It's just in genuine friendship. Uh, Very practical um, advice. Dale Carnegie wrote, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's in your notes. But these are nine things that make you a more approachable person, makes you more, a more winsome person. First one is don't criticize, condemn, or complain. This is something that's huge in every relationship. Are you speaking negativity into the relationship by criticizing people and condemning people? Do you realize that when we speak negativity, it just drags us down and we start to feel negative. This is something I had to learn in my marriage to Heidi. If she's having a rough day, if she's feeling down, I have two choices. I can start pouting about why she's being down, or I can start trying to encourage her. Do you realize our words are either a source of life or death to people? And Proverbs says, those who love it will eat their fruits. You can become an empowering, life-giving person by words of genuine affirmation, genuine appreciation. But don't criticize, condemn, condemn or complain. It's so easy to, you know, this is one thing I see so often when I'm working with other people. It's just fun to tear people down. You listen to talk show radio. Everyone's tearing people down. Everyone loves to talk about how stupid other people are. And it comes back to the fact that we feel guilty about who we are before God and when we can point to other people who are stupider or more morally corrupt than us, it makes us feel good. But as Christians, we should be so secure in who we are with Christ that we can look for the good in people and encourage them. And that people will find that attractive. To give honest, sincere appreciation. This is something that amazes me about my mother. She can be with someone for five minutes and she will start seeing genuine, praiseworthy things about a person. And she tells them. And she's such an attractive, winsome person. It's not flattery. I'm, all of our praise does need to be honest. But look for genuine things to appreciate in people. Those are the kinds of things that will make you so attractive. Arouse in the other person an eager want. This is where you really need to make your Christianity real. You need to be drinking deeply of the well of Christ. You need to be so satisfied by the pleasures of God that you are a satisfied person. People are going to be watching you. Unbelievers are going to be watching your life so closely. You're claiming to know the giver of life, the one who died to give us life abundant, But does your life look any different than those around you? Is there something about you that is making this person curious, making them want what you want? Or are you complaining about your life? And is your life looking like a dour piece of... Anyway. (laughs) Become genuinely interested in another person, in the other people. You know, it's funny. When you get we see all types especially in church and there's a type of people that always complains about being on the outside always complains about being left out of conversation always complains that people don't reach out to them and i don't know if you find yourself in that group but you know life is really a mirror and life gives back You smile and it will smile back. These are cliches. But if you show an interest and reach out, it's going to show an interest in you and reach back. So if you're sitting at a table pouting about the fact that people aren't showing an interest in you, I can guarantee you, you're not showing an interest in other people. If you want friends, if you want to reach people, show them a genuine interest. You know, people are the most fascinating thing in God's creation. People are so fascinating. if you take the time to get to know people, just talk to unbelievers, ask them about themselves. You will find it to be fascinating. That's why people one of the reasons people love movies. It's because it's a glimpse, it's a chance to observe different quirky things about people. And some of the best movies are the ones that paint really complex, interesting characters. People are so interesting. Develop a genuine interest in them. This is a simple one, just smile. You know, people who are smiling are so much more approachable. Remember that a person's name is one of the sweetest sounds. Now, this is convicting to me because I am terrible with names. And most of the time I try to avoid people's names because for fear of getting them wrong. And we travel, do a lot of speaking, I meet a lot of new faces and I'm so terrible with names that I don't even try my wife on the other hand is much better but I find that people who use my name it just it still does something gives me a little warm fuzzy that they cared enough to remember my name it really does and I've heard this from people who are in conversation people if you just use the name it keeps the tension level down use their name As frequently, it shows that you cared enough to remember them and it makes them feel honored as a person. Be a good listener. Encourage other people to talk. I think we (laughs) all could work on our listening abilities, but really learn to listen. Talk in terms of the other person's interests. Make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Uh, And do this just out of a genuine love because you need to see each person as a child of God. I know it's so easy to start seeing outsiders as less than fully human because they're not Christians. And it's so much easier to just develop friendships with Christians because you have a common bond. Christians, I think, develop their own form of bigotry and prejudice against unbelievers. And you need to just reach out to them and show them genuine interest and genuine love. It'll amaze them. That's what Jesus did when he came. You model your life after Jesus. And he befriended people that society was rejecting. And they were so drawn to him because he had genuine friendships. I mean, prostitutes saw something in Christ's eyes that they had never seen from any other man. Think about what prostitutes saw in the eyes of men before. They saw two things. Do you know what those two things were? Disgust or lust. But prostitutes saw this person cares about me as a person. What do unbelievers see in your eyes when they look into your eyes? Do they see a genuine love and concern? Or do they see you're just trying to get out of there? What do they see? And I'm, this is not something you can psych up. This is something that will naturally come the more you abide in the vine, the more Christ becomes a reality, the more you are amazed by Christ's love for you the more you will be able to really love other people and vice versa the more you show Christ's love to other people the more you will feel Christ's love I think sometimes the church gets that backwards I think first feel loved and then you will love others but I think if you really love others it will lead to you being more loved okay the second so the first thing was develop genuine friendships Next, avoid contention. Remember how I was talking in a previous session about how we are maybe 25% mental, 75% emotional, and I know the ratio is much different for some of you women. But each of us has a rational side of us, and we also have an emotional side to us. And very often, we will sacrifice the intellect so that we don't have to make a, do something we don't want to. I remember even in sibling squabbles and we're each trying to present our case about what happened so that the other person gets punished. It was so tempting because my emotions were all wrapped on this to maybe fudge the truth a little bit rather than admit that I was wrong. It's very hard when the emotions are dead set against something to convince the mind. And when you are getting contentious, when you have a condemning spirit, when you have a prideful spirit, an arrogant, haughty spirit, and you know, it makes me so sick when I see what some of the Christians are doing in the chat rooms, the tone of voice and the attitudes that Christians are demonstrating to other Christians, there is no Christ-likeness. It's all about just winning the argument, wanting to tear people down. And they don't realize that that type of attitude is not going to convert anybody. Sorry. Sorry. We need to make people want. We need to do everything we can to soften people emotionally, to show an interest, to show a love in them, to make them want, to, to arouse curiosity, but contention will harden people against the message. Three, use lots of questions. Jesus was always using questions. Questions are so terrific. They buy you time, we discussed last session some of the value of questions. But questions make it so much easier to discern. You know, there's a tension between pushing people away by being offensive with your gospel presentation, that you're pushing people away. But there's also the other extreme where you, you never venture out and, and start probing. So how do you probe without pushing people away? Questions are the perfect way to do that because these questions can be very inoffensive. These are some great questions. I've collected these from different books that I've read. Do you ever think about spiritual matters? Who in your opinion was Jesus Christ? What do you think man's biggest problem is? What's your spiritual background? Were you taught a particular religious perspective? They show a genuine interest in the person, but they help you gather the necessary information. I I mean, these questions make me salivate. I want to go ask someone (laughs) these questions because their answers are so fascinating. But as much as I've wrestled with this over the years, it's still amazing how often when I'm in the midst of battle with someone, (laughs) it's so hard to think of good questions. And I so often forget to think of questions, and I fall back on the same ones. Do you ever wonder what happens to us when we die? What do you think a real, a real Christian is? Where are you headed in your spiritual journey? What do you imagine God to be like? Do you feel there are barriers of some type separating from you from God? Or just how are you really doing? So questions are so effective. They show an honor for that person. They buy you time and they leave that person thinking about these things. Don't focus so much on the the results that you see in the conversation. If you are faithful, you, the Holy Spirit will be used by you to arouse curiosity in these people. You know, when you have a reliance on the Holy Spirit, witnessing should be something that's exciting because you no longer feel the guilt of a whole, the whole burden resting on you. All you want to do is be used by the Holy Spirit and you recognize it's the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to beat yourself up after conversations. Just look back and go, was I as obedient to the Holy Spirit as I knew how to be? And then just trust God with the results. I think we'll be excited to see how we influenced other people. But just so often we only look back at what we said. But remember from the communication lesson that we're communicating far more of the gospel or a message that's counter to the gospel by our nonverbal signals. Okay, stay alert for appropriate ways to show how the gospel is relevant. Uh, when a person complains about corruption or is angry about injustice in the world, ask, you know, this is a prime opportunity to ask. What are you upset about? Are you upset because the world isn't run according to your tastes? Or do you really think there's a standard of justice that this world isn't measuring up to? And what is the standard of justice? Remind people too, you know, that what if God really dealt with all the injustice? Would that be good news? Or what about the injustice that you've committed? What if God wiped out all sin? That's something people don't often think about when this whole problem of the pain and evil in the world. Because they want God to wipe out just a little bit of evil. They don't want God to wipe out all their evil. So when people are complaining about corruption, use this as an opportunity to talk about where that justice is and also talk about God's holy standard. Uh, there's an. I don't know how many, how many of you have heard of uh, Ray Comfort's Way of the Master? Few of you? I, I'm not entirely sold on everything they do on that show in that way. I think it needs to be more complete, but they use the law to show people their sinfulness. You know, Proverbs says each man will proclaim his own goodness and they, they've taped a bunch of these interviews and they'll go up to people and ask, do you consider you're a good per? do you consider yourself a good person? And yet, there's yet to be someone who says, no, I'm not a good person. Each person considers themselves a good person. So what Ray Comfort does is he goes through some of the Ten Commandments. He says, have you ever told a lie? Yes, what does that make you? Most people say human, <laughs> but they say, okay, a liar. Have you you ever stolen? What does that make you? A stealer. A stealer, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) A thief. Have you ever looked with lust on someone? Because Jesus said that makes you an adulterer at heart. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Say yes. And then so they say, well, you, Corey, by your, sorry if there's any Corys in here, by your own admission are a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer who is going to stand before a holy God at Judgment Day, are you going to be declared innocent or guilty? That's something people need to consider, that they are guilty before a holy God. Okay. Also, when there's a tragedy and people are thinking about death, and you need to be very careful because there's... A, there's the tragedy that strikes very close to home live in a small community and we just had a man who was around 30 who had two small boys He was driving his uh, tractor and his uh, arm of his cedar went up and touched the the power line and he was instantly fried to death and it took an hour for people to even get there because of the huge energy force field now we live in a small community of about well, 600 people in the town, but there's a rural community. And that really hurt the community. That kind of a tragedy. People are grieving. And when people are grieving, most of, it's, most of their anger is not mental. It's more emotional. And you need to, first of all, deal with people's emotional struggles. But there's also tragedies that are kind of far removed. Um, you know when there's an earthquake in Indonesia people are really start wrestling with the problem of pain but it's more mentally or I'm going to address that because that is a huge a huge topic to deal with but there's different springboards you can use when people are thinking about death you know Jesus used tragedy to get people thinking about their own mortality there's a story in the Gospels where a tower fell and killed, I think, something like 70 people. And then at the same time, it found out that Pilate had randomly murdered 200 Jews. Sorry, it's been a little while since I've read it, but that was the gist of the two stories. And Jesus asked, were the people who died, were the the people who lived, any more righteous than the people who died? And Jesus said, no, but I tell you, unless you too repent, unless you repent, you too will perish. It's a very sobering thing to die in our sins, and we need to just get people thinking about that. What would it be like to die in complete loneliness, to die guilt, to be separated from God? You know, you've been pushing God out of your life. What would it be like to really be separated? Have you ever stopped to consider how many of our good gifts are from God? But something else, too, in dealing with people with tragedy is we need to proclaim the message of the Gospel. You know, it was the message i mean, of the Resurrection, sorry. It was the Resurrection that really got people excited about Christianity. It was the proof that Christ rose from the dead that really made it take off. And there's something so powerful about the message of the Resurrection because it's what sets Christ apart from every other world leader. Christ alone has solved our death problem. Think about how amazing that is. You know there's people who like to romanticize death but death is ugly. Death is an intruder. Death has never been so ugly to me as it seems like as it is to me in this stage of my life when I have an amazing beautiful wife and two precious adorable children. And I have never dealt with such this his feelings of hatred for death I remember when we were first married the day we found out Heidi was expecting I had to go to Lethbridge to work and I had visions of her just sitting very carefully in her rocking chair and not doing anything and as it was the, the guy I was working with in the city nearby he, had, he ran into problems on the job and we had, kept working late so I called her at at 7, no answer, and 8 o'clock, no answer, and 9 o'clock, no answer, and 10 o'clock, no answer. And I was getting so worked up, and I had all these terrible visions of her, of her dying or something happened to her. And I tell you, even though she hadn't died, inside I just had this screaming rage at what a terrible thing it would be to be separated from her, what a terrible thing death would be. I got home and she still wasn't there, it turns out she had she'd gone to visit a neighbor and had a flat tire on, on the way back and had to walk in the dark and that was really upsetting for me. But it gave me a small taste that night, especially since just the whole recognizing I was a new dad had made my whole protective instincts that much stronger. But it made me realize how terrible death would be. and I, I'm so drawn to that picture of christ standing at lazarus grave and even though he knows he's about to raise lazarus from the death he sees what a terrible thing death is and it says he wept but the word the greek word there is a much stronger it's more like this angry venting at this jesus the creator of the universe here tasted the grief of death and watched what it was doing to his friends and he cried out in pain and agony this is not the way death should be and this is what is so exciting about the resurrection is that Jesus Christ took the sting out of death that he conquered death that death is no longer has to separate us from each other that we can be reunited and that, if you can catch a vision, first of all, of an excitement for you, but also this is a message of hope to people. So often we, we just make the gospel into the bad news parts, and we wonder why it's not attractive to other people. Because we, we give them the law, and we talk about the surrender, but we don't really tell them about the love and about the grace and the hope and the good news that it is. Um, when a person's discouraged about their failures or their family problem, you know, there's a seeker-sensitive movement that just seeks to deal with people's felt needs, and a lot of you have probably heard a lot of teaching condemning the seeker-sensitive movement, and I agree, because if you're just just trying to sell a product, if you're not teaching the things like lordship and Christ's claim to people's life, you're not giving the full gospel. But, you know, by the same token, if you are just, talking about the gospel in cold terms and you are not fully expressing how much God wants to meet people's felt needs you're also not sharing the full gospel because Jesus knows exactly what it's like to feel betrayed to feel lonely to feel guilty believe it or not that's what he felt at the cross he knows the human predicament and he cares so deeply about people's struggles And this is a prime opportunity to be honest with people about our own moral failings, about our own struggles, to show how Christ has made a difference in our life, to show them how the family is not just an accident of evolution, but it's actually a designed unit by God with instructions for how to make the family something more wonderful than people could ever imagine. Same thing when a person's lonely and empty and depressed. Talk about how Christ has specifically met your loneliness, how He's He's fulfilled you. Talk about the guilt and how the God is what makes us truly satisfied, but it's guilt that makes us want to run from God. But now that the guilt's been dealt with at Calvary, we can really find a satisfying relationship with God. Five. Use your life story to show the difference Jesus makes. Bill Hybels gave three very practical pieces of advice when you're sharing your testimony. Keep it brief, keep it clear, and keep it simple. He says, have your before and after stories. And this will be a good exercise for you, as you, most of you have grown up in Christian homes. But think of an example where Christ really made a difference in your life, either where you had a misunderstanding about something or how you came, you came to understand and were changed by the good news of God. I know when I was sixteen or seventeen, I went through a time of such guilt over things that I had seen. It wasn't pornography, thankfully I'd been spared that, but it was still immodest images or things that I had read in books. But it just led to such a dark, depressing time in my life because I was really understanding guilt. I was realizing what it's like to feel alienated from God, to feel alienated from my dad because my dad was my confession board and it got to the point where I didn't even want to be alone with dad because I knew Satan would remind me of something that I needed to confess to him. But I look back at that time in my life even though it was so dark I came to understand the beauty of the cross and the beauty of forgiveness. I remember actually being in tears, thinking about the different images that God showed me during this time, one being a stack of of documents that were the list of all my sins, and I'm guilty, and Christ coming with his own blood stamping, paid in full, and destroying it. That was such an amazing picture to me, that Christ loved me enough to take away my sins, and it became so real to me, even though I had known these things I really experience these things that's just one example but in your own life think about the difference Christ has made and if you there aren't enough times where God has made a difference really seek him for it. you know you were each of you have just most of you anyway this is probably one of your first times away from home and you're you're branching out into a new life and this is no longer going to be your parents faith this is going to be your faith and i found that leaving home it was so much more its so much more difficult to really be a spiritual leader to really it's one thing to read your bible by yourself but to really make it a priority in your home and i found it easy to just now that i'm setting my own agenda to just kind of neglect god's word and in the next hour i'm going to talk to you about a crisis of faith I had being out on my own. But the point is God needs to be real in your life so that when you're talking to other people about it you're not just talking about a distant person but you're actually talking about your best friend and you have vivid examples of how Christ has made a difference. So that, keep it brief because you don't have much time. Keep it clear. Use, don't, just, I, don't just say I was just so blessed. Use words that he can understand. <laughs> and this is a big one. Stay humble. This is supposed to be something that glorifies God, not something that glorifies... You know, I just have the most amazing testimony. I have kept myself so pure ever since I was a young person, and I have been so faithful in memorizing and reading God's Word, and because of that, I am such an amazing Christian. That kind of a testimony is not going to be real effective with someone. It doesn't help that person. You need to spend a lot, pray and toss out bait. This is where, you, if you're really spending time in prayer, you will develop a spirit of anticipation for what God is doing and what God is going to do in people's lives. You know, what is so important about spending time in prayer is that prayer shows us the way things really are. Do you realize we live in a, in a cloud? Are you familiar with the book The Silver Chair? How many of you have read that? It's C.S. Lewis, it's a great book. There's a scene in there where Aslan, what's his, is it Jill? He gives Jill these instructions to remember. He said, "But as you go down into the valley you're going to enter a fog and it's going to be hard to remember these things. Up here the air is clear but you're going to enter the fog. And living in this world it is such a mental fog we enter into and it's so important that we spend time in prayer and in God's word, so that we can have our eyesight readjusted to see things the way they really are. To see the unbelievers the way they really are. In my final session, I'm gonna talk more about ways to toss out some bait, but uh, seven, dwell on the reality of Christ, not just his relevance. Remember how I was talking about subjective truth versus objective truth? It's very important that we establish that we are not just talking about Christ as a new flavor of Coke, or a new type of enhancing drug, or a new type of medicine that's going to help us and they're free to try it or not. But we really need to proclaim the reality of Christ. That's why I try to tell people, I'm not interested in religion, I'm only interested in reality. Who Who is Christ? And you ask people, who is Christ? You know, it, one of my favorite evidences for who Christ is, and I tell people about this, is how did this simple peasant man, who never went more than 200 miles from his home, never wrote a book, never amassed an army, never amassed wealth, didn't own a home, he, the, very, the very last thing, of, article of clothing he owned was taken from him when he died, and he died an unjust death, short life, and yet that man has gone on to have more impact on this world than any philosopher, scientist, invention, anything. Christ has had that big of an impact. What do you account for that? I ask the question, if God became a man, just theoretically, if God wanted to become a man, What do you think that God-Man would look like? It's a great conversation starter, just to get people thinking about it. And when they ask the question, they they start being open to new ideas. I read a really good book on Christian persuasion, and one of the most effective ways to persuade people was role play. Uh, They showed they did a study how there was cancer. There was a lot of smoking on this campus, and they tried to, different ways to reduce the number of smoking. And one control group, they actually had role play time in the doctor's office where they find out that they have terminal lung cancer. And the people who role played that getting lung cancer, the number of people who quit smoking was a much higher percentage than the people who were just told that smoking could cause lung cancer. So in the same way, keep that in the back of your mind. Get people to role play, to put yourselves in your shoes, to to try on your worldview for a while, to see how the situation looks from your perspective. And in the in the act of doing that, it'll soften people and make them more receptive. Eight, don't give a person more than they are ready for. You know it's, this is especially important if you have family that's not saved. You want to encourage them towards God, but you do not want to turn them off. It's terribly sad, but my uncle walked away from Christ when he was, after he went to college, so in his early 20s. And my dear grandpa loves him, loves his son, my dad's brother, to pieces, but he has so often hammered him with different Christian cliches that it has, it has pushed my uncle away to the point that he doesn't even want to talk about these things anymore. Make sure that you're not doing this with your friends. You don't want them to... The moment spiritual things come up, if you turn this into this hammer, mind-blowing session, they're going to want to avoid the topic altogether. You want them to feel safe to, to bring up this area of spiritual it, these spiritual issues, to know that you're not going to suddenly jump on them and tear them apart like a tiger, that you're going to let him talk, be interested in his view, answer his questions, but you're not going to give him more than you're ready for. The final point here we're gonna, for the break is don't give off an air of superiority. You know, it's pride that is one of the chief things that is keeping people from God. And when you have pride in your own life, Satan's gonna use that so much to repel people. A lot of us are worried about our Christian witness. We wanna make sure people know that we're people of integrity, that we haven't compromised our convictions, that we have our certain convictions about not drinking, about not watching certain types of movies. But if all they see is just the fact that you're so busy proclaiming your own righteousness, they're gonna be pretty turned off by that. You really want to make Christ known and to recognize how you're so dependent on him that if it weren't for him, you could end up in a terrible place. Okay, so I'm gonna give you guys, I'm stopping a little bit early, so if we could be back. Try to do some jumping jacks, wake up. I'm quite excited about the next session. It's about doubt, dealing with doubt, and dealing with some of the tough objections we're gonna face, so. Let's try to start, it's 221, let's try to start it by 231, thank you.